Hello, I'm Colleen Morell, a journalism academic and researcher at Monash University in Melbourne, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Paris has long been considered a hub for both tourists and the cultural elite, a hive of activity for artists, designers, writers, and dreamers of all guises. But in recent years, it's also become the center of Islamist terrorism in Europe. More than 230 people have died in terror-related attacks since the start of 2015. So what's it like to live in and report on these events in Paris for an English-speaking audience? Christopher Dickey has previously worked as bureau chief and regional editor in Paris, Cairo and Latin America for both Newsweek and The Washington Post. He's also the author of many books, including Securing the City, Inside America's Best Counter-Terror Force, the NYPD. And he's currently the Paris-based world news editor of The Daily Beast. I spoke to him about how Paris and the French are coping following a wave of attacks. These have included shootings at the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo in 2015, coordinated killings across Paris later that year, and an attack on Nice on Bastille Day in 2016. In a cafe in Paris's Latin Quarter, I started by asking him how he'd first heard of the attack on the Bataclan Theatre on the night of November the 13th, 2015. Actually, I was in Miami on the 13th of November, just about to leave for Cuba, and all of a sudden my phones, both my American and French phones, started ringing constantly, and of course that's when I heard about it, probably within really just a few minutes of the attacks. Good evening. Reports are coming in of a number of attacks in Paris. Two explosions at the National Stadium, a shooting in a restaurant and possibly another shooting in a concert hall. We're hearing several people have been killed and hostages have been taken. The incidents were in the Stade de France. I had to take the red-eye flight uh, overnight and I was uh, on the ground in front of the Bataclan the following morning on the 14th. And then what sort of coverage did you do for the next couple of days? It wasn't just for the next couple of days, it was for weeks. Uh, We were looking at what exactly was behind the attacks, who was involved. Of course, there was a whole second confrontation with the organizer of the attacks, uh, Abaoud, in Saint-Denis just a couple of days later. Uh, I think also we were trying to figure out how France would react, how the French people would react. There was a kind of looking over your shoulder that continued for several days, weeks, maybe even months. I think it's dissipated now, but certainly for quite a while after that, people were wondering when the next attack would come. How do you think the French media covered the story? I think they covered it as best they could. There was a lot of breaking news. There had been issues uh, before where uh, particularly some of the uh, 24-hour news stations had really 
probably released too much information during the Charlie Hebdo attacks, and particularly the attack on the Ipel Kasher, the big kosher supermarket in which several hostages died. Uh, and I think that they learned their lesson. There was a lot less of that uh, during the uh, November 13th attacks. There was an effort to keep the facts straight, but not to give more information than the police uh, could handle. And, um, and as a result, I think that's one reason that they were able to round up the, or at least surround, attack, and eliminate the second operative cell a couple of days later. Somebody's told me that with the Bataclan attack, when the police came in afterwards to take it over, that they think practically the whole of Paris was watching the television. Would you say that was true? Oh, I think that was almost certainly true. I mean, certainly in any country. I'm not sure... I'm not sure it was just the whole of Paris or the whole of France. I think just about the whole world was watching, as we've seen again and again. I mean, you can go back to an incident like the Mumbai attacks, for instance. Three days, the entire world was glued to the screen watching what would happen next, which is, of course, exactly what the terrorists want. But there's no way around it. Uh, If they succeed in carrying out that kind of attack, if they're going to mow down people sitting on... uh, in outdoor cafes uh, and uh, try and kill them in a, in a big sports stadium and blow them up in a rock concert, yeah, people are going to watch that and they're going to want to know what's happening and they want to know when and how it comes to an end and if it will end. And how do you find the security these days? I've noticed it's more beefed up, particularly in the tourist areas. Well, security is a lot heavier than it used to be in the sense, particularly in the sense of a lot of visible soldiers uh, on the ground. Although Vigipirate, uh, the security alert for France, has been in effect for a very long time uh, now. The state of emergency continues. And uh, I think people now are reassured by the presence of the police. But the other thing, and, and, and of the soldiers in full combat gear who walk on the streets, sometimes in platoons, sometimes in squads of four, Uh, There are a lot of soldiers around in my neighborhood. Everywhere you look, there are. Uh, You see huge security measures being taken around uh, places like the Eiffel Tower, major monuments. The Eiffel Tower soon will be blocked off completely uh, with uh, what appear to be glass walls. And um, right now there's a much more uh, temporary but effective uh, obstruction that keeps you from walking under the tower unless you've gone through uh, a screening device. So all of that's in place. Will it help? Well, I don't know if that would have helped to stop people from mowing down uh, innocent bystanders sitting having a coffee or a drink in an outdoor terrace. No, of course it wouldn't. What happens is as the hard targets get harder, the terrorists go after softer and softer targets more and more randomly. And there's virtually no way to stop that, except through good intelligence and, pre- and basically preemptive actions. Just eight months after the attacks targeting the Bataclan and other locations in Paris, a lone wolf attacker drove a truck through crowds celebrating Bastille Day on Nice's Promenade des Anglais. 86 people were killed and more than 430 injured. I asked Christopher if he'd covered that attack as well. I did. I I was in Paris when the Nice incident began. I saw the news immediately on Twitter as it uh, started to come out that people were fleeing the scene of, uh, along the uh, Promenade des Anglais, and I was on the first flight the next morning, uh, and then spent the next several days on the ground in Nice, uh, looking at the aftermath, trying to figure out exactly what went on. 
One of the things that's interesting about Nice is that even though the so-called Islamic State claimed it, we don't have any solid indications of any coordination with the with ISIS. Uh, it looks as if this was just a sort of a grim loser, a two-bit hustler. Uh, his life was falling apart. I think there's reason to believe uh, that he fought his wife and children with whom he'd been fighting for custody. Uh, I think I think there's reason to believe he thought they were going to be on the uh, Promenade des Anglais as he mowed people down there. Um, so that was a strange and, uh, and extraordinarily brutal attack, and yet it's hard to place it clearly in the uh, in the constellation of terrorist operations. Except that ISIS has actually told people in France to drive into crowds. Sure. Well, it, ISIS isn't the only group that does that. I mean. Telling them, in, look, the question with terrorism is, there's always a question is, are you looking at infiltration or inspiration? Infiltration you can track in various ways. It was not tracked very well, frankly, before the Bataclan attack. Uh, that involved a lot of infiltration. But inspiration is much more difficult because the people involved, they're looking on the internet, they get their ideas from various sources, and then they act more or less alone. It's true that a lot of so-called lone wolf attacks really are not lone wolf attacks. Um, in the last year or so, we've seen a number of them coordinated over encrypted messaging services, particularly Telegram. But uh, in the case of the Nice attack, it appears to have been uh, one guy with some accomplices who probably had no idea just exactly what he planned to do. How have you found the French media's coverage? I mean, have you been surprised by any of it, or is it exactly what you would have expected? I think French media coverage has been pretty good. You know, when I was a kid and used to come to France and read French uh, papers, they were all heavily and obviously ideological. And ideology trumped facts many, many times, certifiably. Uh, I don't see that so much in the French press anymore. Yes, the there are definitely ideological slants to different newspapers and different media, but it looks to me like it's pretty straightforward when it comes to events like that. Uh, sure, there are going to be opinion pieces blaming this party or that party for their competence or incompetence, uh, but, uh, but I think there's not a lot of disputing what the facts are. The truth is, the press that now is plagued by fake facts is not the French press, it's the American press. Do you think that terrorism is playing a role in the French election campaign at the moment? I think terrorism was vital to building the uh, constituency for Marine Le Pen and to some extent the overall rightward drift of uh, French politics on security issues. But remember that the most law and order, in quotes, uh, candidate and president that Francis had for a very long time was Nicolas Sarkozy, and he's wildly unpopular. To some extent, Marine Le Pen has replaced security with pure xenophobia. But Sarkozy did a lot of that too. In fact, sometimes Sarkozy seemed to move to the right of Marine Le Pen on these issues. So what's happened is that the whole spectrum has moved to the right. Nobody says, let's be soft on terrorists and nobody's going to, and nobody's going to even hint at that. But uh, whether xenophobia and trying to block all immigrants is the best way, no, I don't think so. And even Marine Le Pen actually doesn't say that's what she wants to do. Her argument about immigrants, 
for a long time has not been about terrorism. It's not the Donald Trump argument. Uh, it's that uh, France just can't afford them. Do you think that the Parisian population is happy with the new security measures that are in place? I think they're happy with the security measures that are in place. I don't think they're happy that they have to have those security measures. I mean, you don't want to go around looking over your shoulder all the time. You don't want to be remember, reminded every time you walk down the street and see soldiers that this is a country in a state of emergency. No. But given that it is a country in a state of emergency and given what's happened here over the last couple of years, I think everybody's very happy to see serious security measures, at least everybody in the centers of the cities. I think there's another question when you get out to the banlieue. I don't think that that really is the heart of terrorism. I think that's a mistake. But it is a heart of, it is a center of confrontation with the police. And the more aggressive the police are, the more aggressive people get in the banlieue, uh, get in those housing projects uh, that are out there. Um, but I think generally, yeah, people are very happy with the security measures. And some people would probably like to see more. You were saying yesterday that maybe it's not so much a French problem, in fact, as a Belgian problem. Well, I think that when we talk about who the terrorists are, we're not looking at people from uh, the so-called banlieue, from these housing projects on the outskirts of the cities. Uh, very often we're looking at people who uh, either grew up in, in relatively small-town rural France, uh, but as from immigrant families, or from Belgium, or uh, in the case of... Uh, of uh, the attacks on November 13th, people who were infiltrated um, from uh, in the Syrian refugee flow. Uh, not all of them, but some of them. And that whole operation was organized in Molenbeek, a, a center city a neighborhood in Brussels. So it isn't like you can say, oh, well, the, the bolia are burning and therefore terrorism will increase. I think those have to be seen as two separate things. It is true that you have uh, Salafist uh, recruiters in the banlieue looking for people, but there isn't a great record of, of, of them finding them and turning them into the terrorists who've carried out successful terrorist acts. I think part of the reason is that some of the people who are looking and recruiting probably are actually working for the police. That would be the way you would do it. Do you think it's affected tourism? Sure, it's affected tourism. Tourism was down dramatically after November 13th, it dropped also after Charlie Hebdo, and it certainly dropped after Nice. Uh, this is the number one tourist destination in the world, so you still see a lot of tourists here. A huge amount of Chinese tourism. They were only put off, I think, for a month or so, and they're all back. Uh, but of course, people don't want to come for a romantic week or weekend in Paris and have to worry about getting blown up, no. So would you say Americans are still coming? I think Americans. I don't. I don't have the numbers on the Americans, but I hear a lot of American English in the in the streets. They may be, you know, Canadians trying to fake it, but basically, they're American tourists. No, there are a lot of American tourists in this town. I see them all everywhere, all the time. And has it affected day-to-day -day life in terms of people sitting in on the terraces in the cafes? I know that just after that attack, there was actually a call for people to take up the well, terrorists again. First of all, remember it was November. November is usually a cold, nasty month in Paris. And we have terrible weather here. And it was a beautiful, beautiful evening. It was very warm. It was amazing that you could sit out like that. Um, and it was the bad luck of many of the people who were sitting out like that, that they would suddenly find themselves uh, uh, facing a fusillade from, uh, from uh, Kalashnikovs. 
But in the days that followed, yes, very quickly people came back onto the terrace. Uh, one of the places that was very hard hit, called La Bonne Pierre, uh, was uh, reopened within a couple of weeks. And people were out on the same terrace, on the same sidewalk cafe, uh, at the same sidewalk tables, uh, where a number of uh, people had been killed and wounded only a couple of weeks before. So yeah, there was that kind of resilience. I think the thing you have to remember about France is that there's been a lot of terrorism here. Just there's, and it goes way back. It, uh, when I was a kid uh, in 1962 visiting here, I was 10 years old, and there were uh, police and gendarmes around with machine guns. I thought it was the most amazing things, and I was worried. I, I came across letters I was writing to my cousin, who's my same age, talking about worries about bombs going off here in Paris. Well, that was the right-wing uh, OAS uh, that was after de Gaulle for surrendering in Algeria, as they saw it, giving up Algeria. Uh, in the 90s, we had a number of serious terrorist attacks connected to the Algerian Civil War. And there were bombs going off uh, up near the Etoile. Uh, there was a very serious bombing in the RER, the, the uh, commuter train uh, that stopped at Saint-Michel, right in the heart of Paris. So uh, it, t terrorism is not something that's really new here. The Rue de Rennes, we're sitting on the left bank now, the Rue de Rennes, a few, a few minutes walk from here, there was a horrible terrorist attack carried out by Tunisians, but basically in the pay of, uh, of the Iranians. So this goes way back here. That was in the 80s. Uh, now, does that mean that you can accept something as horrible as the Bataclan on November 13th, or Charlie Hebdo, or the Nice attack? No, there haven't been any attacks as big, especially as the Bataclan or, or Nice. Uh, but people do learn that they can spring back. They do learn that they can live and keep going on with their lives. But I think that following such a large attack, there seems to be a sort of wariness that people have now. Well, this is what I was saying. I mean, there was certainly in the, in the weeks, even months, that followed the Bataclan attack, if, if we want to say that for shorthand, um, you know, people were looking over their shoulders. Uh, you could feel it. It was palpable. I don't think people are looking over their shoulders too much anymore. They... they, they are aware of the possibilities. I think you coming into this city, you don't live here, and after all, you're reporting on terrorism. So you're probably looking over your shoulder a lot more than the Parisians are. I'm not used to seeing signs, though, telling you what to do in the event of a terrorism attack. Well, I don't know. It's not as rare as all that. I mean, in New York City, if you get on the subway, there's there are signs that say, if you see something, say something. Now, what's the see something about it? And what's the say something about it? It's about bombs on the subway. So I'd say there are a lot of places where uh, caution is being urged. And in fact, all of that contributes to the safety of these cities. The danger, and we've seen this here in France, the danger is that as cities become tougher targets, as monuments become tougher targets, the terrorists go after rural uh, targets. They go after a parish priest uh, in Normandy. They go after a couple, of, a couple, both of them, man and woman, both of them police officers with a three-year-old child. Uh, they do that kind of thing to get attention. Uh, and it's relatively low risk. They may get killed eventually, but they succeed in their attack. And uh, that, of course, is, is dangerous and makes people worried. Although the truth is that those incidents are also forgotten very quickly. 
How do you think that French government ministers managed, including the prime minister? Because it must be quite hard to be in charge, but feels so fundamentally that you're not in charge of what's going on. <laughs> well, that's a good way of putting it. Well, I think that uh, Prime Minister Valls, uh, who was previously the Interior Minister, um, I think he did the best that he could. I think President Hollande did as well. I think both of them acquitted themselves well under the circumstances. Certainly after Charlie Hebdo, there was uh, such a, it was a wonderful collective rejection of that violence, je suis Charlie. And you also had, of course, the, uh, the rejection of the violence, the anti-Semitic violence of uh, the hyper-cachère attack. But after uh, the Bataclan, although people rallied around the president and he managed to, to uh, I think, gain support, you know, questions had to be asked about the failure of the intelligence uh, networks. Uh, why didn't they stop these guys? Why didn't they see it? It wasn't just a question of those few who came in through the Syrian networks. Why was coordination so poor with the, uh, with the, with the Belgian police? Why didn't the Belgian police do a better job? All those questions were asked, and we are told that everything has improved. But we were told after Charlie Hebdo that everything had improved too. So, you know, and then you had the Nice attack. How about that? Uh, and there was a lot of criticism of the police there. They should have cordoned off more. Well, maybe. That's easy to say after the fact. They just missed the most obvious thing, that the, the, the um, Promenade des Anglais is an incredibly wide sidewalk, and you can drive a truck up onto it and at high speed down it, which is exactly what happened. Would you say the media is still chasing the police about how the security operation is going, how they're actually finding out what might happen next, etc.? I think the big worry now, big worry of the media, big worry of government officials and counter-terrorist uh, analysts, um, is there are m many. One is there's a feeling that the cells that were directly involved in the Bataclan attack and the Brussels attack and the Brussels attack have pretty much been rolled up now, uh, and there was a computer found in the trash near one of the apartments they used. Uh, it hadn't been thrown away. It was put there because multiple people used it. And on that was a lot of information, which has really helped the authorities in Belgium and in France to, uh, to feel reassured uh, about ending those cells. What they don't know is whether there are more cells that are not connected at all to these. They have the names of some of the people said to be directing these operations out of uh, uh, Islamic State controlled areas of uh, Syria, but you can't be sure that those are the only people. You know, what you see, what you can say is that these are the people they've identified. What you can't say, it's what they used, to, what uh, Donald Rumsfeld used to call unknown unknowns. What you can't say is is what you don't know. Uh, and I think there's a lot of worry about unknown unknowns, especially now that you have so much pressure being put on the so-called Islamic State in Syria and in Iraq, uh, and their territory is shrinking, it looks inevitable that they will lose their capitals and they will lose, they'll lose Mosul completely, they've lost most of it already, they'll lose Raqqa in Syria, uh, and they'll be squeezed out. But this is not an organization that just gives up and goes away. Uh, it doesn't surrender. 
So where does it take the war? It'll take it to Africa, it'll take it to Nigeria, to Libya, and it'll do everything it possibly can to bring it home again to Europe and, uh, and to the United States. I think everybody's aware of that, and everybody's worried there may be sleeper cells, but this, all we can say is that we're worried and that the police are doing everything they can to find out if there are any. And that's where we'll have to leave Christopher Dickey in Paris. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to Speaking With on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you liked this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the series, please send us a review or comment through iTunes. I'm Colleen Morell from Monash University in Melbourne.